You ever wonder about animals and their behavior? Well, this is the lecture for you. Uh, this is uh, Dave Broadbeck, by the way, and the lecture you're about to hear from Algoma University Psychology Department is uh, Psychology 3106, Animal Behavior for the Fall Term of 2019. Enjoy! fits well with the way I'll end off today. Okay. So we can talk about that, I hope, as we get going um, today. So learning, uh, the first thing is what is learning? <laughs> and this is not an easy question to answer. Now we did a whole course called learning, Psychology 3306, we'll probably be on next year. Sometimes I teach it, sometimes Lori teaches it, but it's, it's mostly about how animals, non-human animals, learn things, that course. Um, the best definition that I've ever seen is the one by Bob Rascorla, who's a genius. Um, and Bob's definition is some event at time one affects behavior at time two. Okay. Now, look, I can come up with a lot of times of stupid examples where this wouldn't be learning. Like, if I I got a rat running on a maze and I cut its legs off. Has it now forgot how to run the maze? Well, the event of time one affected behavior of time two. That's a horrible example. I'm very sorry. But obviously that isn't learning. The rat has probably learned to be very frightened of me because I'm such a psychopath. But that's not learning. But look, you can always come up with stupid counterexamples for things. Really, this is a pretty good example because it, it includes classical conditioning. It includes awkward conditioning. It includes more complicated kinds of learning, like you know, spatial memory and bases and things like that. It would include song learning, all kinds of things. So that's the nice thing here, is it's, it's general enough. Something in general is going to have stupid counterexamples, but we're not going to worry about those. So like I said, it's a pretty good definition. There's others that are similar. I just like this one um, because it's very straightforward and general enough that it encompasses basically everything I can think of, like classical and opera conditioning, as I mentioned. One of the things that is important in learning is a notion that actually, well, uh, sounds good on paper. <laughs> it's called equipotentiality. Equipotentiality just means that any two stimuli can be associated with each other. Any two stimuli can be associated with each other. They're equally potentially, it's, it's equally possible to learn that. So if you've got reinforcement, we don't need reinforcement. We've got 
stimulus one and stimulus two are both equally likely before any pairing of stimulus one and stimulus two with stimulus three. Because what the animal's learning is that stimulus one predicts stimulus three or stimulus two predicts stimulus three. Okay? And what this says, equal potentiality says, either of those things are equally likely to be paired up. It depends on how many pairings of S1 and S3 or S2 and S3 we get. And if we have more pairings of S1 and S3 than S2 and S3, then it will learn that S1 predicts S3. And it can go the other way with S2 and S3. Okay? So this is the idea of equal potentiality. Anything can be paired with anything else. It's a very Watson, Skinner, behaviorist type notion. It's also completely untrue. <laughs> well, completely isn't quite the right word, but it's, it's, it's not a great, it's not always true. It's very often not true. So, for example, if I pair With light, with like a light, a key light, it's a, it looks like it's a loom and it's just a lit up disc. With, with food, so you get light. That's. And then access to food, the overlap, that's for say a pigeon. The pigeon will, now no one knows why to this day because pigeons do this but they will actually start pecking at the light. That doesn't actually lead to any, pecking at the light doesn't lead to food, but they will peck at the food, at the light. If it's food, they peck straight on with their beaks open. If it's water, they peck side to side with their beaks open a little bit more, like they're drinking. Stupid pigeons. So it's bizarre, this behavior is called auto-shaping because it's like the pigeon shaped itself to that. Um, but it's also, it shows that the stimuli affect things. Or if I pair grooming behavior in hamsters, so licking themselves, right? grooming behavior, and I pair that with shock. So every time they groom, I shock them. By the way, these shocks aren't nasty, okay? They're unpleasant, but when you set up a shock sort of situation in an experiment, the way you test it is you put your finger on it to see if you can feel it. And usually when you feel it, that's enough. Because you're not trying to kill the damn animal. You're trying to make something a little bit unpleasant. You can't. <coughs> it doesn't work. So when you can't, the animal can't learn that something that is a repetitive behavior, something that is good for the animal, like cleaning itself, it can't learn that has negative consequences. It just won't. It, it, it doesn't stop doing it. It can learn other things, no problem. It can learn to avoid, like a hamster can learn, oh, don't go over there, I'll get shocked. I'll stay over here, I'm good. It'll learn that really quickly. But it can't learn, and you know, you see hamsters, they do that thing where they kind of lick their paws and rub their, they almost look human like they're washing their faces, and uh, gerbils and hamsters. They, they, they can't pair those things up. Okay, 
Okay, that's work by Sarah Shuttle. It's wild, right? But then when you think about it, it actually makes a great deal of sense. Why would the animal, why would evolution have said, you know, sometimes cleaning, you can clean too much. It's, it's not going to work. So equal potentiality is theoretically a thing in learning, but it actually isn't a thing. There's, there's so many exceptions that it doesn't work. Final example. You know the example of the Brelins? You know Breland and Breland? This is this misbehavior of organisms. It's beautiful. In 1961, two former Skinner students said, we're going to take, instead of being academics where there aren't, isn't no money, we're going to go into like animal training. We'll train animals for movies and commercials, displays and windows. They were, they were training these little, they were training these uh, pigs to put, put coins. They weren't real coins. They were like big wooden coins in a piggy bank. In a, in a, and they, this would be set up in the display window of a bank. Be very clever. And at first, the pigs are, yeah, sure, pigs aren't stupid, and you can train them uh, very easily to do things, just operating conditioning. Pigs are also delicious, so you got all that both open in one. <laughs> Think about it. Pigs, pigs and cows, all the delicious cuts of meat inside a handy leather carrying case. But the pigs are fine at this for a while, and then after a while, they stop doing this. They won't put the, the coins, the, again, these aren't actual little coins because people couldn't see it. They're like, you know, that big around, and it says, you know, US five cents on it. It's a nickel. It's a wooden nickel. They stop doing it. Instead, they start rooting it with their noses. So they thought, well, we won't use pigs anymore. They start using uh, raccoons. Because, you know, raccoons are great because they look like they're bank robbers. They got masks on. It'd be clever. It'd be beautiful. So they train the raccoons to do it. The raccoons will do it too. They'll pick. And raccoons, you ever seen raccoon hands? They look like little human hands. So they take the coins and they put them in the shirt. And then after a couple of days, they just put them in, they take them in, they put them in, they take them in. They won't actually drop it in there. The, both of those species are treating the coins as like it's food. Pigs do that. They root for food, right, with their snouts. And raccoons don't store food. So they would like, I can't do that. I'm not going to put that in there. I'm not going to keep that. So equal, equal, and, and, and the amazing thing is shown how important the idea of equal potentiality was. When the Breelands wrote this up, the, the paper they wrote was called The Misbehavior of Organisms. It's like these stupid animals aren't even doing things right. It's like, well, no, that, actually, that's how nature works. It's crazy, right? So equal potentiality really isn't. So people have wondered about what animal's smartest for a very long time. I get asked this a lot. I was once asked it by the Discovery Channel. It's crazy. And I think the reason I got asked is because I, my, my, my uh, name starts with a B. And so they look at lists of people that do this kind of stuff, and they go, oh. Well. So it's Discovery Channel in Canada. A colleague of mine at Tufts University in Boston, Bob Cook, keeps a, a list of every scientist who studies animal cognition. All of us. So, and this was Discovery Channel Canada. So what happened was they got to me and looked and went, "Oh, Memorial University of Newfoundland," because that's where I was. I got a phone call. 
This is the Discovery Channel. Okay. What's the smartest animal? I said, that's a dumb question. <laughs> Jen, ask that question. You know. But people wonder about this all the time. People have looked at things like sip for serial position effects, you know, serial position effect, and learn in, in memory, right? Like you took memory with me, right? The first thing is remembered best, and the last thing is not remembered best. The stuff in the middle isn't remembered very well. People have looked at short and long term memory, right? And the, there's an implicit, almost explicit, it's so obvious, maybe that's just obvious to me, but there's, at least implicitly, there's a question being asked. When one starts saying, do pigeons show a serial position effect? By the way, the work's all good. I'm not trashing the work, because the work is really good. These are good experiments. So if you're asking questions like, do pigeons show serial position effects, or a monkey show serial position effects, or if black-capped chickadees or marshtits show serial Those are really good, like they're well-designed experiments. But why are you asking that question? Because we know humans do those things. So if humans show it, let's see if other animals show it. That's the, like, that's the driving thing behind this kind of work. Right? Because if you're asking, oh, let's see, human memory phenomena. wonder if rats do it. Or human memory phenomena. Better see if pigeons do that. And doesn't it? Okay, now, most of you... Guys aren't um, don't think about these ideas that often, and that's fine, because it would be weird if you did. There's very few of us who think of these things, and most of us are quite odd. Um, the question seems sensible on the surface. But what's the basis for a question? It's kind of like asking, why can't people fly by flapping their arms? That's clearly a stupid question. But it's not quite that stupid because we all have cognition. We all represent the world. We have that in our brains or nervous systems or whatever the hell you want to call it. But you say we all have locomotion. Birds fly. Hmm. But again, it doesn't... Because he doesn't fly, but that, that's a bad choice of words. Well, it, it kind of says that there's got to be some rank ordering, and everything's trying to be us. Because it's like, well, I wonder if pigeons could do what we can do because we're awesome. Like, there's this subtext that's like, I wonder if rats do this because we do and we rock. That's basically like what's going on there, right? And Campbell and Hodos in 1969 said, that comparative psychology, that's the psychology, that's basically psychology comparing learning among different species. That's all it is. And if you're really serious about comparative cognition, comparative psychology, that's a paper to read. Like it's just something people should read that. Because it'll also make you kind of, it'll, well, put it this way, well, it made me angry when I read it. It's just like, you mean people have been doing this wrong for all this time? Well, happily, I was only four when the paper came out. So, 
So basically, that's, that's wrong, right? We know it's wrong that there's a scale. Scaling that true, the idea of a ladder. We know that's wrong. We talked about that just the other day. A week ago today. So we know that's wrong. The question then is, why does psychology do this? Or and why do comparative psychology do this? So there's, I guess, a better way to look at it. I generally, at the time, psychologists didn't know anyone biology, which is mind-boggling to me. But at the time, they just didn't. They didn't know enough biology. Look, if you don't know enough biology that you're misinterpreting evolution to think that there's a ladder, you don't know enough biology. You may know a lot about mitochondria and endoplasmic reticulum, but you don't know the very basic thing about biology, the evolution of natural selection. It sucks. That's pretty bad. Ooh, what was that? Okay. Oh, sorry, breaking point just signed with the Act Bay Lightning, three years, 6.75 per. Anybody paying attention to the restricted free agency NHL? It's a bridge deal. It's thievery. How's it? Well, well, Tampa, you know what's going to happen? He's going to score like a zillion no, points, and he's going to get like 14 million a year in three years. That's going to happen. In Florida, there's, yeah, basically. Believe, I've been to Florida. There's also no social services, so it makes complete yeah. sense. <laughs> like, you know, it's, actually, if you got, if you're making 14 million a year, you don't need social services. You can build your own. Just buy your own. Right. I think they have a pretty good health care plan, NHL players. Oh, no, he'll, he'll, he'll cash in like hell in three years. That's why that's, uh, I didn't think he'd do a bridge deal. Anyway, so back from, that's my NHL analysis, if you guys are paying attention. Uh, so there's no goal, as you know. The better question is which, what's driven some species to be able to, be, to solve a certain type of problem? So what evolutionary pressures then, right? What selective pressures have led to the evolution of different cognitive mechanisms? Selective pressures have, have, have driven the evolution of different cognitive mechanisms in different species. That's an interesting question. We can see some things when we look at the fact that there is instrumental conditioning, there is classical conditioning, that obviously predicting the future, the ability to associate two events, is an important skill that every animal ever tested shows associative learning of some, some type. Even a lowly nematode and its 302 neurons shows associative learning. That should tell you about something. Well, our universe has this thing called cause-effect relationships. So being able to predict and learn about cause-effect relationships, that makes sense that all species share associative learning. Some form of associative learning, sometimes many forms, are shared between 
every animal species ever tested. All of them. Okay. So that's something sure. That's selective pressure, the idea that your universe has cause and effect, makes a great deal of sense that that would show up in everything. But then we're going to get where I think it gets interesting, is what about different species that have different niches? Right? Niche is just the biological milieu that you live in, the different selective pressures of your life history. So if you're a migratory bird, you should be able to navigate over long distances. You can go do that better than a non-migratory bird. By the way, someone asked about the evolution of migration. I asked my daughter, because she's doing stuff on migration for her PhD. She did send me some uh, references. So if anybody wants those, I can fire them off to you. I think I said that day when somebody asked if anybody looked at that. And I said, I asked her. I emailed or texted her, and I said, you know anything about the evolution of migration? And she could just text it back, lol, just reading it now. So there's a couple of pretty good papers that I've got. So that's a, a pressure, right? That if you got to get somewhere else, and if you don't get there, you die. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good thing that you should be able to do long-range migration. for example. And then we compare those animals to ones that say don't. So asking which species is the smartest is kind of a silly question, isn't it? Because to be a human, we have to, there are certain things we have to be able to do to survive, right? And I don't mean now. I mean in our evolutionary history. So in the last, oh, it's been humans for about, there's been H. sapiens conservatively for oh, 200,000 years. Okay? So if, there's, if we've been around for 200,000 years and we've had living in cities and towns for a couple of thousand of those, let's look longer term. What should we be good at there? We should be good at recognizing individuals because of the importance of uh, sort of social things. We should be good at communication, language, Sure. Those are things we should be good at. We should be better at that than some other species. Or, think about recognizing individuals, because that's something we're, because we're a very social species, maybe we've evolved such that we are easier to recognize differences between each other's say, faces than any other species. And in fact, you know what's weird? You take other primates, like uh, rhesus monkeys or chimps, and you show them pictures of individual humans, they're, be they're better at the detecting different humans from each other than they are detecting members of their own species. We're really different looking from each other. And that's probably allows us to say, uh, oh, that's Keegan and that's Chris. Right? It allows me to, easy to do that. But if we took two, you guys are cousins, right? If we took two cousin chimps, Chimps would find it easier to disagree between those two guys than they would between the cousin chimps, which are over here. I'm not pointing at other people here and calling you chimps. Over here, where there are no people. Imagine there are chimps here. They'd be throwing shit at us already. But, because that's how they just how they roll, chimps. 
So that's interesting. Maybe we're not actually better at it. Maybe we're just easy to discriminate. Kind of cool. So asking what species is the smartest is kind of a silly question. Because you don't need, if you're a cockroach, you don't need to be able to use language. You've got other ways. Okay. Again, I can, I can certainly say that the most cognitively complex and flexible animal on the earth is humans. I'm comfortable saying that. But there are things that other animals can do that I can't do, and they're cognitively things they can do and I can't do. Right? I can't, rec I can't do... Um, paint a picture with sound the way a, a bat does. And I can never learn how either. I just don't have the gear. I don't have the cognitive gear, even if I could make the sounds. Of course, what we do is we just invent sonar, right? So it's a little different. Humans are kind of cool. We invent stuff. So we're going to want to compare species on questions of learning, right? We're going to want to compare them on learning. We're going to compare them on memory. Because if we make these hypotheses, how do we, well, we're going to have to see species A, species B, let's see if they're different from each other. And a lot of you heard me talk about this before. If we find what looks at a cognitive difference, how do we know it's not due to motivation? So let's say, I mean, I don't know. Are you, even if we could say that how we rated you, in two different courses was completely objective. Let's pretend it is. <clears throat> it is, but let's pretend it is. So let's pretend a test from me tests what you learn from me as well as a test from Paul tests what you learn from Paul. And you take two tests, you take from, one from me and you take one from Paul. And you're taking both courses, you know. Everything else is controlled perfectly. And you do better in my class than you do in Paul's class. But it turns out, in fact, maybe you just didn't try in Paul's class. As hard, because it's not as interesting, and he's a loser. So maybe it's boring, stupid, it's applied, bogus, not interesting. Humans, which are boring animals. So actually, maybe you're actually maybe maybe or maybe Paul's course is actually just harder. Seems kind of like basically child's play that stuff. But you know, I'm kidding, you, right? Okay. As I said this morning in neuroscience, I said um, if I don't make fun of a prof, you can infer at the end of the year I actually don't like that person. We don't get along. People I make fun of. I only, make, so I only make fun of my friends. Everyone else is my enemy. And I'm frightened of me. So I was frightened of Cheryl, but now she's far away. So she doesn't scare me anymore. It's a joke. So maybe it's motivation, right? You didn't try as hard in Paul's class because you just don't care. You didn't try as hard in my class because you don't care. So, or maybe you got two species in one species. We're getting, using the same reinforcement, using a piece of peanut. Maybe. Species A doesn't like peanuts as much as species B. They just don't try so hard. Right? So how do we know it's not due to motivation? That's something that people have been bringing up for years. And in fact, Bitterman talked about this. And Bitterman said, the thing is, 
what we're going to have to do is, Bitterman said this stuff in the 60s, um, try different kinds of reinforcement. Makes some sense. But then Bitterman also did a weird thing in an article where he ranked species in learning ability and said some were primate-like, some were rat-like, some were pigeon-like, some were fish-like, and some were reptile-like. Does that sound at all like an evolutionary ladder to you? Because it does to me. And in fact, he said it wasn't. And it's like, Hodus and Campbell, that paper I talked about, said, yeah, but you said it right here. Look at this picture of the ladder you drew in that article. I didn't do that. <laughs> I think it's more like, you misunderstand me, is what Bitterman was saying. But I always took it as him saying, I did not. Someone else did it, and I put my name on it. Like Either way, it doesn't look good on it. So for a long time, people didn't do a lot of comparisons, uh, except for the implicit comparison with people. Ewan McPhail, who's a Scottish guy, you'd never guess that, with the name Ewan McPhail. This is back into the... Bad. I don't think you're hearing the sounds at the top of them. That's bad. You know EW200? Lecture theater, the other decent sized one in the other building. One day I was teaching in there, and there were people on the roof working on the roof. That's like, okay. People working on the roof. It's a little loud, but I can get. And then we started seeing they were putting down new membrane on the roof, and then we saw spikes coming through the ceiling. And I said, okay, let's go. Because like when you start seeing ceiling coming down and there's spikes, so we ended the class early. Not as bad as the time in WW101, yeah. where looked over and then all this steam started coming out of the vent. It looked like someone was gassing us. It was like we were in splinter cell or something. It was horrible. It was probably harmless, but it's like, okay, we should probably end now. Because we could all die. Nobody died because of my past. <laughs> so McPhail says that in science we start with the null hypothesis, he's right. And our case, the null hypothesis is there's no difference between two species. Okay. But you've got to keep that motivational thing in mind. So anytime there's a difference, could just be that it's motivation. It's not really that one species is better than another or different than another at some task. It's that it's a motivation. They are trying as hard because it's they, you know, your reinforcer isn't just reinforcing something to that effect. Okay? These are very influential ideas. I mean, so influential, in fact, I mean, there's a special issue of Frontiers in Psychology coming out, Better Psychology, it's probably in the summer, and they've asked a bunch of us to write about the importance of these things in, in the history of thought about comparative psychology. So there's a bunch of us that have been asked, I don't know if I want to do anything, because I don't know what I'd say. I don't know if I'd say anything different than anybody else, other than this is dumb. Which doesn't look good in a journal article. 
You suck. You have no good ideas. It's not really something you say. Okay, so Al Camel, and that's Al Camel, holding a Clark Speckracker. That is an animal that can store 30,000 seeds worth more 25,000 of mark six months later in a 40 kilometer radius. You can't do that. You write it down, you'd be fine. Because we can invent writing. Again, humans are pretty awesome. So Al had a response to this in 1987, which is there's a flaw here. And the flaw in that, you set up an hypothesis you can't reject. If you say we're going to use hypothesis testing logic and say we find counter evidence, then we reject null. And then you say, but none of those count. You're basically moving the goalposts all the time. Right? You're always moving the goalposts. So, you, you know, people were like, how do we fix this? He said, Al said, it tests many species in many different paradigms. Actually, he said, oh, you have to uh, test many species in many uh, different paradigms. That is a killer Al Camel impression. It really is. It's good. It, you can't really take it on the road or anything, because there's not really a big call in Vegas for people that can do impressions of comparative psychologists. But if there were, so basically, if we find similar differences, pattern of differences in many different tests, it's unlikely that motivation will be the culprit here. Because error cancels. So let's say we're, we say, for example, that we expect a difference between food storing and non-storing birds. And we expect that difference to be that the food stores are better at remembering spatial things than the non-stores. So we could, we could have different tasks. We'll call them spatial one, spatial two, and spatial three. They should be no different on memory for what? For color. Why should they be any different in memory for color? It doesn't make any sense. So we'll have color tasks. We'll have, uh, how about sequences of tones or something? Okay, so we'll have sequences. And we get a whole bunch of other tasks. And we got food store one, food store two, food store three, non store one, non store two. So let's say we have five species there. And the one to three in food store means they're more reliant on food store. We should expect a ranking something like this. And here, So we always expect to get a ranking of the more you depend on food storing, the better you are at spatial memory. But we expect literally, we can't predict, and it should be unrelated to your reliance on food storing for say memory for color or for sequences of tones. Okay? We've used a lot of different tasks and all kinds of different reinforcement. We've got different kinds of stimuli. 
So error cancels. In other words, sometimes it is going to be that a certain task or a certain reinforcer um, is more motivated for one species than another. But if we do a lot of tasks, we shouldn't expect to get, always get the same pattern. Does that make sense? Questions on that? Make sense? When I first read this, this is the first thing I was, uh, this is a paper from 1987. I know it's old, but it's called a synthetic approach to, the, uh, to animal intelligence. It's synthetic in that you're putting things together, not that it's not natural fibers. So, what this then, well, like I said, when I first got to graduate school, the first thing Sarah Shuttleworth gave me to read, she said, read this. So first, on the first day. And I came back, and the next week when we had our meeting and we were talking about it, and I was like, this is, this is like changed my life. I've never, I never read this stuff before. And then I got to meet him at a conference. It was great. I was a master's student. I was like, I just turned 24. Very exciting. And I'm at this conference in, in Halifax. And it was all these eminent researchers, and you've never seen a bunch of people. See, they all know each other, right? So I'm, I'm just this kid, and I'm sitting there like very kind of And in the morning, I'd had breakfast with Al and Sarah, and Al was telling me about various things. It's great. So we're, and I told him that he was right about these things, and the fail was ridiculous, and that's like. Thank you for pointing that out to everybody. It was great. And then there's this talk, and this was a, an invite-only conference, and I was allowed to go because my supervisor said, you can go, we'll all sponsor you. But they're all people who actually know each other. I don't know this at the time, but everybody knows each other, and it's a pretty cool group of people, and they're, they're all friends, right? This one guy, Mark Rilling, gets up, and he's speaking, and he said, he starts his talk out by saying, I... Um, really like the approach taken by Ewan McPhail. And Al Campbell is sitting like 10 seats over, three rows down, and I'm just sitting, and I'm right just taking notes, and he yells out, hey, Broadback, there's one in every crowd. <laughs> and I'm like, he said my name, too. I'm so embarrassed. Everybody's looking at me. Now, you know, they're, like they're heckling each other. It's a little weird. Because you think science conferences, we all get together and we're all very serious. There's, very, there's a lot less heckling in most conferences than I saw that week. It was very strange. So the error cancels. And we're going to look at different things. Look at life history. We're going to look at the neuroscience. We're going to look at biology, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, and psychology. We're going to put all of these things together to understand learning differences between species. We're not just going to say, can rats do what people do? We're going to ask evolutionary questions. And we're going to ask questions about neuroanatomy. What sort of differences should have evolved? Okay. That's the kind of question we're going to ask. And we're going to do this crazy thing, and that's called make predictions. For the longest time, it's can rats do what people do? That's all what are pigeons and rats different on mazes? It's just demonstrations. It's all demonstrations, right? 
what I did. It's, it's like a grade seven science fair. I, I, I'm really trashing the work of hundreds, uh, over 100 years of like, psychology. And a lot of the stuff's good, and I didn't do it, and it's better than a lot of stuff I've done. All I'm saying is that it's a strange way to do science when you just say, I wonder what would happen if, it's kind of like will it blend or something. Wonder what happens if you do this. It's like David Letterman dropping watermelons off at power and filming and having it on TV. Because you can. So the food story and bird story, as I've kind of talked about a bit here, is a good story in this case. It starts out with one of those ESS models I talked about the other day, saying that only food story can only evolve if you find your own seeds. It can't evolve any other way, because if it does, if there's communal food storing, I'll take your seeds. And I'll find only mine, I'll have more seeds, my genes spread. Or, maybe I won't store at all. I'll just sit around while you guys all go out and food store. I'll sit around here and I'll probably kill all your young. What the hell? While you're out doing that. Let's throw that in. I'll give you a real dickhead. Communal food story doesn't evolve. So it's got to be remembering where my own seeds are. Do I do that? And I told you the other day about Sherry Avery and Stevens, like 81. Yes, they do. They radioactively tagged the seeds. And then when Sarah Shuttleworth did her did a, a sabbatical at Oxford, she's like, well, I know. I want, let's see if it's memory. It's got to be memory. So she did one, of the, did one of the first set of experiments saying, is it memory? Right? Lo and behold, it's memory. Because when the birds go back into the, they go into an aviary, they store some seeds, and then you go into the room and you take half the seeds out. The birds were storing in a room, an aviary about the size of, the, well, from here, here, there. So it's a very small room. And there were four four by fours sitting on stands, like Christmas tree stands, that had holes drilled in them. That's what they were storing. And between the time they stored and the time that instantly you take the bird out, and you go in there, you remove half the, they were using pine seeds, pine nuts. You remove half of them, have them fly back in. Which, where do they go? They go to where their seeds were. If they could see them or not, it's not a matter of can they see them, it's not a matter of can they smell them, they just go back to where they put their own seeds. If they're doing that, it's pretty obvious they're using memory. With the Clark's Nutcrackers and the Cowbirds and all the, uh, sorry, the Clark's Nutcrackers and the, and the Jays and all that, it actually turned out that the uh, Clark's Nutcracker was better than other animals on spatial tasks. So things like being on a in a sort of a flying maze, or remembering where a seed was that they encountered. Not when they stored, when they encountered. But with the, with the, uh, the chickadees and the marsh tits and that, it didn't happen. So what could it be? Well, they did have a bigger hippocampus, neuroscience there. So Sherry Avery, what was that? Sherry Vaccarino, 
Cherry Krebs, Baccarino, Buckingham, and Hearst. That's right. Um, found that food stores have a bigger hippocampus than non-smokers. This is true both in the mice and chickadees, but it's also true in the nutcrackers and jays and stuff. Okay. So the part of your brain that does spatial memory is bigger if you're a food store. Good. But they kept not finding any difference between... Yes, please. Do you know uh, if they recovered the seeds in the corner, did they store them there? Uh, once. <laughs> There's literally one paper where that happened. Right. And that's uh, Shuttleworth and Krebs, I think, um, They found an order effect. And it's the only time the order effect's ever shown up. So Sarah always said she figures it was just some artifact of what, how they did the experiment because it never showed up again. Um, because, yeah, there was an order effect there. There would be an order effect if it's over days, different bouts of storing, but this is one bout, and that's the only time it's ever been shown, up, shown to happen. If you have them store, like, one hour, one day, one week, 28 days, and 56 days, They'll recover the more recent ones. Sure, that makes sense. That's uh, Christine Hitchcock's work. But yeah, uh, within a small bout like that, it's only been found that one time. So Sarah said she always figured it was just some weird, because it never happened again. We always look for it, and it never happened. So it was either something, it was either dumb luck, which seems unlikely, because it was happening all the time. So it's probably just the, something they did in that experiment that no, we couldn't figure out what. Uh, no, it's pine seeds, so pine nuts. There was that, there was that one study where mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, and that's the stuff. Uh, that's uh, Dickinson and Chang and Camel and Clayton and the whole bunch of them doing that stuff with the, uh, the, the food that, that, that uh, rots, basically, right? It's meat, it's well, insects and worms, and it gets rotten, and they'll, they'll, they have to know when they put food that rots. Do it when they put it there because it'll go bad. Whereas pine seeds don't go bad. Yeah. So yeah, this is. So what happens? People don't know what's going on with the the, the, the parrots, the pits, and chickadees, and turns out, in fact, what they're remembering is different. The stores, the non-stores, the, the chickadees. So what they're doing is they're solving spatial tasks at the expense of remembering color. It's in fact hard to teach chickadees to remember color. They don't think it's like, well, I don't remember where that is. Okay, that's most, that stuff is a, is a task that I developed. It's also been shown over the years, a lot of different people replicated in food stores versus non-stores. Stores rely on space more than anything, which makes sense. The amazing thing about food storing is the story's almost told. It's one of the few questions in comparative psychology where people say, well, no, it's done now. Because, I mean, there's things to learn about storing. There's things, right, Keegan? <laughs> there's things to learn about foraging, right, Keegan? But on the other hand, we know about the, the, the memory differences. We just know that now. It's kind of cool that the story, that story's been told because it doesn't happen that often. It doesn't happen that often. And it started in 1982, and it kind of went for a while, and it's done. Like it, people figured out the, the memory differences, which is great. Oh, by the way, have I told everybody here? I told you the story about William Osai finding me Googling something. There's a book. I mean, this is years ago. You know William, right? Geography professor, super nice man. Yeah. 
And I'm looking, I'm, this is a long time, it's 1996, and I'm new. I'm just some kid with, and I, you know, wearing motorcycle boots and, anyway. So I'm typing on my computer and I'm writing, and I, I remember, oh, I need to remember, oh, I know how much chickadee weighs, because it's something I know, but I need a reference. I don't have the book, but I know what the book is called. By the way, chickadee weighs between 11 and 12 grams, that's easy. So I'm like, the book I need is a book called British Tits. That's the name of the book. <laughs> so this is before like Google and such, and searching it was good. Because I bet if you typed in right now British Tits book, don't. <laughs> probably don't. But you'd probably find it on the first page at least, that with a bunch of other things. But I typed this in. And again, like I said, searching wasn't that good back then, so of course it figured I was looking for something else. And, and I, it was either Yahoo or Lycos, one of those shitty search engines. And pictures are showing up on my screen. And you can guess where your pictures are. And William Osai, who always used to drop by and tell us, his office was like two doors down from mine a long time ago. And he'd always tell people where he was going. Like he was checking in with you. It was very odd. Like he'd come in and he'd go, I have to go home now, but I will be back. It's like, why are you telling me? But he was just being nice, saying, I'll be back later. He comes in, he opens the door to tell me this, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and I said, but William, I'm just looking for British tits. And I, I said that, because in my head, that's all I was, I was just writing. And that, that didn't help. <laughs> didn't help at all. So that was a fun time. Good times. So the food story story is a pretty good one. Um, the cowbird story is a good one. I've, I think I've talked about cowbirds, right? The idea that in cowbirds, they're nest parasites, right? So the females lay eggs in nests of other species. So what they have to do, the females have to keep track of are there, are there uh, eggs in these nests? And where are they? Because they have to parasitize other species. What they do is basically get others to raise their young. We would expect the difference between females and males here, such that females have better spatial memory than males and cowboys. Further, we would expect the difference, the more generalist a cowbird is, in other words, the more types of species it can parasitize, the better, the bigger the difference between male and female will be, because they have no more nests to remember. We can also guess that the more recent versions of cowbirds will be more generalist, right? Probably the first nest parasite was just parasitizing one or two species. And then the strategy evolves over evolutionary time, and you end up with different, you get speciation, you get different ones that are more generalist. The most specialist, I think, parasitizes one species. The most generalist parasitizes, I believe, 216 species. We should expect a, the, the, the sex difference Females better than males at spatial tasks. At spatial tasks, we should expect that more in the generalist than the, than the specialist, and we find it. We should expect hippocampal differences to be bigger as well in the generalist versus the specialist, and you find that. We should expect. No, that's about it. That's the things we should expect. With that, yeah. And in fact, the nice thing is, again, that's a story that's kind of been told now. And cowbirds are now used as a model 
species in, if you want to use wild birds, and you want to do something with hippocampus, because it's so huge and easy to find if you're lesioning it. Like it's, I mean, when I say easy, I've never done this work, and if we brought my daughter in right now on FaceTime and asked her, was it easy doing work with cowbirds, she would laugh at me and then curse me. But it's used a lot as a model species now, because it's like, look, there's a big hippocampus, we can shut it, we can turn it off or whatever, cut it out, pretty cool. Do you know about the voles, the, pet, the, the pine voles and metal voles? So pine voles are monogamous. They mate for life. They're nice. Meadow voles do not. Meadow voles do long-term mating, but they have more than one. One male to many females. It's called polygyny. So, one male mating. So, a male might have four or five mates. And that's in metabols. And the thing is, they have more than, they, 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 that means they have four or five nests they have to visit. Right? Because when the female is nursing, she can't go get food. I don't know if you know about like rodents, but when you see rodents that are newborns, they aren't finished yet, right? Like they're really, they're not done yet. They're all trishal animals. They look like, they're, they still look like they should have stayed in longer. Yeah, they have no hair, their eyes are closed. They're horrible, ugly animals. So she's just laying there and they're just all attached and they're, they're, they're nursing all the time. So she can't go out hunting for food, like at foraging. So what does she have to do? She has to wait for the male to provide food for her. So he goes out uh, to, to Rome's or Metro and he goes shopping. Exactly. He goes out in the field and finds some food and brings it back to the female so she can eat and keep herself alive and also make milk. We expect there for a, to be a male-female difference in spatial ability that is that shows up in, in metal voles, but not in pine voles. We should find that males are better on mazes than females in metal voles without pine voles. We should find the hippocampal difference, same thing. And that's exactly what was found. Pretty damn cool. See, so any questions about those three sort of stories? They're, they're good stories because they're basically, they've been told now. And they're probably the first stories that were told, sort of research stories that were told, based on this new approach. Okay. So the original idea is that about general process learning, assume that all species are the same, except for humans are best at language. That's, that's really the only difference they ever seem to accept. But these examples show it doesn't work that way. From an evolutionary angle, in fact, that's really ridiculous. Pretty ridiculous. Okay. So to conclude this bit before we talk about those articles, I want to talk a little bit about modularity. I think learning is modular. modular modules are kind of like cognitive organs. 
things like space, time, number, those would be modules that we all have, all, all of us being all species. Probably the, and when would a new module evolve? Okay, that's the question one would ask yourself. By the way, so here's a, a point that Sarah Shuttleworth has made over the years. When people say, well, they follow the same rules, so it's probably just a general process that space, time, and number. They all follow the same kind of rules. And Sarah said, it was said to me one time, and then also said subsequently in print, gee, hearing and vision follow the same set of rules. Are they the same sense? No one would ever say something so stupid, right? It's patently ridiculous. But when you say, well, space, time, and number all follow Weber's law. Well, they're all the same mechanism. No, they don't have to be, right? So once you have new module evolve, this is maybe when the present ones won't solve the evolutionary problem presented to an So if we have associative learning, and then we have bird song, and birds have to learn their own song, the song of their species. Uh, and they have to learn it very quick. Well, they have to learn it over a short period of time. And they have to always learn it, a version of the same song. Associative learning is probably not going to work. So we would expect some different, different sort of module to evolve there. So that was an, that's an idea that Sherry and Schachter came up with, uh, Dave Sherry and Dan Schachter, quite a while back. And for those of you who took uh, memory, yeah, that's that Dan Jacker. And uh, Dave Sherry is a big deal in the history of uh, animal cognition as well. Two Canadians. We're really good at this shit. I don't know why. But it's good, because I didn't have to go to another country for graduate school. Questions on this before we talk about those things? Okay.
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.